In this world, we have, we have much that distracts us. We have a lot that, that, that would compete with, uh, with God for attention. Uh, polytheism, that's just a big word that means many gods. Uh, but people struggle with many gods. Polytheism is not just something that exists in some pagan culture. Polytheism is something that exists in every, every heart on this earth. Calvin was right. Our hearts are idle factories, and where there are idols, there are gods. Not the true God, of course, but the little gods, the, the false gods, the gods made in our own image, who the Bible describes as being nothings. There's, of course, unbelief that competes for God's attention and God's glory. But think about this. Just as those, those, those idols that we, we conjure up, we make in our own image, can contribute nothing, do nothing for us, contrast to that the true God. And that's really what Isaiah is doing here for the people who are deep in sin, they're on the verge of losing what they have because of their sin. And their sins are, are, are manifold. Isaiah spells out many, many different sins that they have going on. Everything from Sabbath desecration to, to uh, their own introspection, their own pride. But listen... As we consider this passage this morning, how God speaks to his eminence, his I am your God and you'll be my people, his being with them, Emmanuel. To set this a little more, consider the, the biblical teaching that our confession sets forth in chapter 5. When it says that God, God is preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Now there, there's an inclusiveness. All His creatures, God is in control of. But then He goes on and He says that God upholds directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and actions and things from the greatest even to the least. And then he makes this special note in chapter 5, verse 7 of the Confession. After a most special manner, God takes care of His church and disposes all things to the good thereof. Yeah, God, God's in control of all things. He's upholding, guiding, directing, all things. But he's particularly concerned for his church. Now, if you think about that a moment, that makes a lot of sense. After all, he gave his only son for the church. Christ died, we're told, for the church for His people whom He had loved from eternity. Let me just ask you right there, do you believe that? 
Because remember, whatever is not of faith is sin. So do you believe that God is in control of all things, that He governs all things, but that He's particularly and especially concerned about the welfare of the church? Now here we're not talking about the institutional, liberal, unbelieving church on some corner somewhere. We're talking about the blood-bought elect of gods who gather themselves to worship Him on His special day in His own prescribed ways. Do you believe that He has a special love and concern for them and that we, the church, are never outside of His purview? This passage says so. So the first point, providence is based upon God's relation to His creatures, but especially His church. God's providence is based upon God's special relation to His creatures. Notice how it begins here. But now, thus says the Lord, notice capital L-O-R-D. This is not the lowercase uh, one speaking of the master, the powerful one. It's talking about God in His special covenantal role with His people. I am your God and you are my people. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. See here, he's not talking about his role as creator when he says, He who created you, O Jacob. He's talking about creating Jacob. Not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. And he makes that point as he goes on. I, he, I who formed Israel. And then he moves on to make it particularly clear. I redeemed you. This is going back to Deuteronomy 7. This little people, God saved. And he says, why did I save them? Why did I make them into a people? Why did I create them into this, this people called the people of God? Because I loved them. Period. I thought it was because they were better than others. No, because I loved them. Providence, the reason God provides for His people is because, well, because He made them. That's the foundation for it. He created the church. Whether it be in its Old Testament condition and state or whether it's in the New Covenant. God is the creator. He's the all-powerful creator of the church. You see that in verse 1. When you get the idea of creating something, and here the idea is out of nothing. Just as in Genesis chapter 1, God made all that we see around us out of nothing. So He made His church when there was no church, when there was no people of God. He created it. He shaped it. He formed it. He redeemed it. And then He, he formed it. 1B says, 
There's the care. You get this idea of the of of God taking it, taking taking something that was that was nothing and shaping and forming it into something that's beautiful. In fact, we're referred to as vessels of mercy. The Lord describes himself as the potter who takes the clay and shapes it, forms it. The power of the of God creating his his people and then the care of the Father lovingly shaping it. And you get love coming through clear in one sea. Fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. And here, the readers of Isaiah, the hearers of Isaiah, would have been reflecting back upon the Lord's words in Genesis 17. That he's their God. And they're his people. And he's setting them apart to do a great and wonderful work. If you turn back real quickly to Isaiah chapter 4, you get another glimpse into this as well. Where Isaiah has already told the people something very similar. When he talks about the the Messiah coming in chapter 4, verse 2. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of flaming fire by night. Here he's using the same imagery as when he brought them out of Egypt, right? And the the fire and the clouds and his delivery. And here he refers to it as a creation. Jesus referred to you and I, coming into the church of the living God as a creation. Do you remember? That's what regeneration is. It's a reformation. Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, unless you are born from above, you, you can have no life. There's no hope. You have to be rebirthed. In other words, recreated. That's the reason for the usage of the terminology in the New Testament. The, the, in, in, and even in John, the way John begins, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, the Word was God. In the beginning all things were made by Him. And then the rest of the book is about the spiritual Creation. He moves from the word being there at the beginning of creation and then he moves on to the spiritual theological use of the phrase regeneration, recreation, formation. Providence is based upon God's relation to his creatures. He made us. Folks, listen, the church, the church is not 
The church is not the idea of some man or some men at some point in history. The church was created by God. And whether in the Old Covenant context, when she went under the name of Israel, whether in the New Covenant context, the gathered, the ecclesia, or as Paul reminds us, we are the Israel of God in Galatians. As Peter reminds us, we, the New Covenant saints, the gathered people, are the same people that God, as God, redeemed in the Old Covenant. We're the royal priesthood. We're the holy nation, Peter says. We're a peculiar people, called out, set apart by God. Now, just a quick word of caution. That's not something for us to be proud of in the arrogant sense of the word proud. It's something for us to rejoice in. It's something us to praise God for. And so we can be proud that God has done this for us. But there's no place for haughtiness and arrogance because notice who did it. He created you. He formed you. I, God says, have redeemed you. It's God's work. Now that's the basis for then him taking good care of us. And that's what the rest of the passage is about. And so the second point that you have before you there in the, in the insert is that providence touches all areas of life. Every aspect of life is covered by providence. Notice how he proceeds. Because I've called you by name, because you're mine... When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The waters here just speaks to, this is, and this is commonly used in the Old Testament, speaks to these general catastrophes. So, in general, when things happen that are not good, I will be with you. And then he moves to a specific and through the rivers. So that's not just the generic waters he's talking about, these rough times in life, but even the specific issues of life. You say, well, yeah, I know God loves me and He takes care of me and I'm going to go to heaven if I die, when I die. But, you know, day in and day out, there are these things. And are you saying God's involved in those too? Yes. Not just the waters generically, but the rivers. I'm sure that there were saints who knew their Bibles in the past week or so as the floodwaters rose in the Midwest along the Mississippi and there were saints thinking about this passage. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do about my house that's washed away. I don't know about this, I don't know about that, but I know this much. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And some of you may have even seen some of the newscasts, some of the interviews, where people actually gave testimonies just like that about what they were going to do now that this had happened to them. 
It was rather refreshing. Now, they didn't quote the verse. And they may have not even been thinking about it, but they knew this much about their God, who is a God of providence, who directs all things and controls all things and guides all things, that their God, their covenant faithful one, would see them through this. Some of you have faced similar things this past year with deaths, with disease. You can go on and name your problems. And you know that you've not been overwhelmed by them. And the only explanation for that is because God is the God He presents Himself to be in the Holy Scriptures. And so notice, God preserves them in the midst of devastating trials. Again, the general problems, the waters of verse 2 a and the fire of 2C. The specifics, the rivers and the flames of 2B and 2D. He preserves them in the midst of these problems. Interesting, Jesus prayed for his church this way, this very same way. In John chapter 17, he said, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the trials, but you see them through it. Go read chapter 17 this afternoon. He prayed that prayer. And he was being thoroughly consistent with what he had already spoken to his people in Isaiah chapter 43 when he prayed that prayer. So God preserves. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel? Chapter 3, verses 16, right along in there. They were convinced that God would preserve them. And even if He did not preserve them, if that was their time, if their days that God had numbered were up on that day, they were convinced He would still take care of them. And so they persevered. So God preserves His church. But He not only preserves the church, He also provides for the church. Notice what it says here in verse 3. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. He provides for us. Now here, this is a pretty, pretty remarkable statement. God will do whatever it takes to take care of His people. And in this context, He's telling His church that even if it means that I do something to Egypt and I do something to Cush and Seba, I will give men in return for you. In other words, I'll exchange others for you. I will sacrifice other people that my church be preserved and provided for. And here in 
in verse 3 when it says, I give Egypt, and then on down in verse 4 when it says, I give men, you've got two, two words and you've got two different tenses. And the idea is that I have done this in the past, I am doing this, and I will do this. Whatever it takes for me to have a people on this earth and to provide for them, I will do. Now that sounds like Jesus again, doesn't it? In Matthew 16, I will build my church, verse 16. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will crush the enemies. Egypt was a known enemy. I will provide for my people. I'll preserve, I'll provide. And then notice also, not only provides and he preserves for his people, but notice something here. We, we can't, can't leave this passage without noticing interesting use of terms in verse 3 and verse 4. I give Egypt as your ransom. That's the word in the Old Testament that's used in the, in the sacrifices, the covering of our sins with the blood of the bulls and goats, and the exchange I will substitute. And so all of a sudden you're, you're beginning to see that here in this passage, he's, he's telling them that, look, I'm going to buy you. He'd already said this as much back in verse 1. Fear not, for I've redeemed you. This idea of redemption, buying, purchasing. I will purchase a people for my namesake. And this points us forward, of course, to our Savior who was the ransom, he was the exchange, he was the sacrifice. I give men in return for you. Ultimately, he gave the man, Jesus Christ, in exchange for us, in return for us. So we start seeing the gospel just weaved all through this wonderful passage on providence. Providence touches all of life. Providence finally not only preserves and provides, but notice that it, it assures the perpetuation of the church. It assures the perpetuation of the church. Notice verse 5, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. And from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, and here you have commands, give up. In other words, or we would probably, and, and some translations do this, add a word, give them up. And then, do not withhold them. Here God's using this, this, this powerful language. This is how much I love my churches, and this is how, how faithful I am. This is how committed I am to building my church. Wherever my people are, strewn to the ends of the earth, I will save them. I will redeem them. I will bring them. 
to be part of my glorious, beautiful bride. And we see this. Ken Center's done a two-week with a little intermission teaching on the mission of the church as a culmination of our fall series for the adults. That's part of our mission is to go to the ends of the earth, go to all peoples, preaching, proclaiming, teaching the good news. You say, but we live in a day where people just don't believe anymore. Listen to what God says about that. In Acts 13, 48, as many as are appointed to eternal life believe. We go with the certainty that when we proclaim the good news, the gospel, that Jesus Christ was incarnate of the flesh, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life, that he did everything he could kept all the commandments that we were commanded to keep but have not and should not but must. He went to the cross, suffered, bled and died to cover our sins, to take them away. He went into the grave. He arose from the grave that we might have the promise of resurrection and He is even now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us that we might be saved completely. People everywhere under the influence of the preaching of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit who are called by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will believe that message. And so the church continues to grow and grow and grow and will to the end. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. See, God's in control of this, folks. Who is it that receives? Who is it that believes? According to God in John chapter 1, verse 13, those who are born of God. Not those who believe based on the will of the flesh or the will of man or even have been born into a covenant family per se, but those who are born of God. John 1, 13. Doesn't get any plainer, doesn't get any more hopeful than that. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's getting to Ephesians chapter 1. All those who were chosen from before the foundation of the earth. For what purpose? For His glory. Some of you, in addition to reading your Bibles daily, and you've just started, probably started over in that, you also perhaps read your, your catechisms and confession daily. And there's a wonderful, there's wonderful means to do that. Uh, there's a little email pop-up that I get. It's called uh, Daily Westminster, and it's a, a fellow who harmonizes the confession and the catechisms, and so every morning I just go there and look at it if I'm not close to my hard copy. 
And the reason I do that is not to advertise for this email. But just yesterday, the shorter catechism, the larger catechism, questions one of each. What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Why did God create us to be His people, the church of the living God, for my glory, He said. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. In other words, what God's doing there in that verse, He's saying, okay, this is what I promised to do for my people. This is how I promised to provide for them, preserve them, perpetuate them. Come on out and tell me if it's not true. It's a challenge he's putting forth to the nations, to the unbelievers. Tell me if it's not true that I do not have a people for my own namesake. Tell me it's not true that I don't provide for them. And tell me that my church is not progressing. My church is not in perpetual growth and existence. And of course, unless they want to lie, they have to just stand in silence and confess in their hearts, yes, it is true. There is a God. He does have a people. He is providing for them. And they just, they just seem to stay around. No matter how many governments rise up and try to take them down, no matter how many times they're assailed, they're oppressed, the church is there and the church is marching on. So back to the original question. Do you believe that? God called you to a challenge there. Speak up if you can prove me wrong on this. Of course, God knows and when he spoke that Challenge that no one could ever. Do you believe he's specially active in caring for his church? Do you, do you take time from, from one day to the next to think about it? To contemplate the wonderful love of God. The fact that you and I, members of the church, have been called by the name of God. I called you by name. You're mine. He tells his people twice in this passage. In verse 1 and verse 5, fear not. Fear not? Why? Because he loves us. And because he is on our side. 
You say, but there are a lot of enemies. Yeah, there are. But notice what he says to them in verse 6. Give them up. Do not withhold them. See, he's in control of our enemies too. In fact, our catechism reminds us that Jesus Christ as king is crushing all of our enemies and his enemies for his, his glory and for our good. I hope you believe that. I hope you can testify from the bottom of your heart this morning that you belong to this God, that his name is stamped upon you, that you're a member of his glorious church, these people for whom he is the Holy One and the Savior. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful word. Thank you for this encouragement to your church. We live in a day where we need encouragement. And so we ask that you would use this this morning to encourage us as your people to enjoy the provisions you have for us, to acknowledge that you're the provider of all that we have, and then to be faithful, to call others to faith in Christ, to call others out from the east and out from the west and from the north and the south, wherever they may be, that they might be in your church with your people doing your bidding and enjoying your blessings. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.